If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation about the 17th century artist Artemisia Gentileschi. Artemisia is the subject of a major new exhibition at the National Gallery that was set to open this month but is now postponed due to COVID-19 restrictions. I spoke to the Renaissance historian Catherine Fletcher, who wrote a feature about Artemisia for our April issue, to find out more about her tumultuous life and her dramatic work. So for listeners to the podcast who may never have heard of Artemisia Gentileschi, could you introduce her to us? Yes, so Artemisia Gentileschi was born in Rome in 1593. She was the daughter of an artist called Orazio. So from a very, very young age, she was around the Roman art world um, and she was able to get a training in her father's house. So she starts painting very, very early on. Um, Already by the age of about 17, she's made this incredible um, Susanna and the Elders, which I think we'll come back to. And... And she's clearly very, very talented. Uh, She goes on, though, very young to experience particularly kind of traumatic event in her life um, that has really shaped the narrative of her career um, over decades of art history. She's one of the most important artists of 17th century Italy and indeed Europe. And Probably 10 years ago doing this podcast, we would have said she was one of the most important women artists of 17th century Europe. Um, But now, actually, I think the things have moved on and we just think that she's one of the most important artists. Full stop. She's an incredibly dramatic painter. She paints these, uh, probably the best known painting is Judith and Holophanes, in which Judith is kind of right there in the act, um, slicing off the head of this Roman commander in the Old Testament story. Very, very dramatic stuff. And these paintings go alongside a very dramatic life story too. Do you think it's that drama that makes her work so significant or so distinctive? Well, I think that hmm, there's always a little bit of a tendency, particularly with women artists, to go from the biography and try to read off these exciting events into... um, what they're painting, and to make it all a little little bit sort of touchy-feely emotional. Now, as we'll come on to, um, there is certainly a lot of emotion in her life, but I'd be just a little bit cautious about reading her paintings purely through that prism of she had a very tough time personally, and that's what comes out. Can you give us an idea of the culture and society that Artemisia lived in and how women artists fit into that picture? So if we start with really the classic work on Renaissance art, going back sort of 25 years before um, Artemisia was born, um, the standard set of famous Italian artists in this period, they're all men. You've got your um, 
Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael um, come on a little bit later on and you get into um, Caravaggio, who's very much the kind of starry name of the um, Baroque period. Um, however, there are also a lot of women who are active. Now, if you look in the kind of classic text of important artists of the 16th century, which is Vasari's Lives of the Artists, written originally in 1550 and then updated a little bit later on, he's just got one chapter on women. And he names it after one particular um, female artist, Propensio de Rossi. And then he crams a few other women in just uh, like around the edges, but they're all packed into one chapter. Um, but in fact, um, there's Propensio de Rossi, um, active in the 1520s. Then later on, you get Plautilla Nelli, who is a nun working in Florence. She has just had a last supper, um, just been through a big conservation process that's been unveiled again, got quite a lot of press coverage last year. Um, and then you have people like um, Lavinia Fontana, who is a very important portraitist in Bologna. Now, um, Fontana's interesting because she, like a lot of the female artists in this period, including Artemisia, is from a family of artists. So it's quite tough. There are people who do it, but it's quite tough for women at the time to go out of the household and get training. So you see quite a few of the more prominent ones are women who have grown up around artists and who've started to learn the techniques from primarily from their fathers. So as you mentioned at the beginning, it was, wasn't only Artemisia's work that was remarkable, but she also had a very uh, turbulent life, I think it's fair to say. What are the key moments for you in that life? I mean, the thing that is by far the best documented is the trial of her teacher for rape. Um, so this is a pretty harrowing story in which the young Artemisia, when she's still in her teens, um, is in her father's household um, learning the techniques of art. And he brings in um, this man to teach her some fairly you know, technical stuff about um, the kind of trompe technique for painting on ceilings. Now, this would be a very useful skill to have to go out and work with. And... Um, Basically, with the connivance of a neighbour um, who's a tenant of the Gentileschi family, um, Agostino Tassi, this teacher, um, takes advantage of his pupil. He rapes her. There's a kind of in the trial, there is just this horrific account of what he does to her, which I, I won't go into. You can read it for yourself. Um, and indeed, how she fights back. I mean, she goes, she goes and takes a knife and is about to stab him and kind of doesn't go through with it. Um, and it's obviously very harrowing. Um, she is then persuaded um, by Tassie and by the neighbour that he might marry her. And of course, this sounds quite weird now, um, but actually for a young woman who is in the society of the time being dishonoured by rape, marrying the guy who had done it was one way of kind of recuperating um, your reputation. So she goes along with kind of ongoing sexual exploitation for, for a while and kind of puts up with it. Um, it eventually transpires, though, in fact, that this guy is already married and has been the subject of multiple um, scandals elsewhere. That comes out of the course of the trial. And the trial itself is interesting because this is not Artemisia going to court and saying, this guy raped me. It's her father going to court and saying, my daughter has been deflowered and the offence is against him because she's almost his property in this scenario. Her kind of value on the marriage market has been diminished by what's happened to her. She's no longer a virgin. Um, 
And so this is what the case becomes about. Um, and all sorts of really horrible stuff is said during the case that she has been sleeping around. Um, there are stories that she's modelled nude for her father and that's been in front of an audience that she's just, you know, somebody with a very bad reputation and not a kind of not not a nice girl, as it were. So you know, this is this is fairly hideous stuff. Do we have any concept of how much that would have followed Artemisia around during her lifetime, that reputation? I mean I think I think everybody knows that this is um what's happened. It's been a very public affair. Lots of people, you know, it, it's it's not a secret. Uh, but quite quickly after the trial, she gets married. And to some extent, then being a married woman um, protects her somewhat from too much gossip, so long as the marriage lasts. But then within the, within the context of the marriage itself, um, clearly, you know, d- 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 they have a business partnership, which seems to work out. Um, she continues painting, and she does very nicely in Florence. So they move away from Rome to perhaps to kind of distance themselves um, from that scandal a bit. Um, they move away from Rome. They have several children. Um, it's a very impressive management of work-life balance, producing all those kind of paintings uh, when she's in Florence alongside having, you know, I think it's four or five children altogether. And then um, the marriage starts to run into problems. And there's a complicating factor here, which is that um, Artemisia was having an affair um, with a patron, apparently with the kind of knowledge and awareness of her husband. And this, again, is a very, very, something that's kind of might feel quite uncomfortable and alien to us now. But in these court contexts, when you have marriages which are sort of arranged marriages to some extent for um, business reasons, and you have a wealthy patron who's in a position to do you favours in terms of getting you commissions and so on, um, it wouldn't be unheard of, though I can see it might be quite uncomfortable, for a husband to go along with his wife having that affair um, Maybe because she sort of genuinely wants to, but maybe on a little bit of a transactional basis as well. Like, I like you enough to do this and to get the favours in return. So it is very, very complex. And I mean, that's something that's only come to light very recently when a set of letters were discovered about a decade ago. So some of those are going to be in the National Gallery exhibition and no doubt there'll be more discussion about them. I know that you spoke earlier about the um, potential pitfalls of linking biography very strongly Mm -hmm. to work. Yeah. But perhaps you could just tell us about some of the ways in which people have theorised about how Artemisia's life impacted on her work and whether, you know, whether you agree with that or not. We, the paintings that are most famous are very much these paintings that you could situate in a context of women taking revenge on men. So there's this incredibly emotionally driven Judith who is sort of slicing the neck of Holophanes and the kind of story on from the Old Testament. Um, similarly, you have um, Yael in Cicera, which is another story um, of an Old Testament heroine. In that painting, you've got Yael, and this is done, it's always amused me, just as the marriage is really on the rocks. And you've got this picture of this woman literally sort of hammering a nail into the head of this guy, and you just think, ouch, that would have been really uncomfortable. Um, so this, there's a whole series of these very kind of 
strong, heroic women fighting for their people, fighting for their reputation. Um, there's also a sense, even in paintings, which are not so much um, like that, like Susanna and the Elders, which she painted. So um, Susanna and the Elders is a very um, typical painting subject for this period, um, partly because it's an attractive young woman in her bath and there's a couple of old gents sort of leering over her. And it's a biblical and it's story. It's a biblical story, yes. Um, and you can do this in several ways. You could do it the, so it's almost like a little bit farcical, like the carry-on, Susanna and the Elders, it's sort of St. James and Barbara Windsor type kind of comic um, version of this painting. You could do it so it's all quite sexy, or you could do it in a way that Artemisia does it, where the woman is clearly really traumatised by the fact that these horrible voyeuristic old blokes are, you know, leering over her. And there she is, she's trying to kind of cower away and protect herself from being seen. So she brings in these readings that I think are, you know, very, very different from what you see from a lot of male artists of the period. And I think that's where, you know, there is an important element of her being a woman making these paintings, seeing things from a woman's perspective that perhaps male artists wouldn't think of in quite the same way. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think that she brings to her work, a particular experience of being a woman in that period. And she does work that I think it would be phenomenally difficult for a man of the same epoch to do. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. As you mentioned, um, she travelled around Italy and had a successful career and drew on many influential patrons. Um, how successful was she and who were some of those patrons? She works for all sorts of very, very influential people in this period. So she has um, commissions at the um, court in Florence. She paints for... Um, the Casa Buonarroti, which is the sort of memorial house that Michelangelo's nephew is making um, for his uncle. She paints for the Dukes of Mantua. Um, she goes on and um, paints for Charles, Charles I of England. Um, she spends a bit of time at the English court. So she really does um, travel around a lot. And what's interesting is she's quite assertive about the value of her work and about and patrons not messing her around. So there's one instance where um, a particular patron has asked her to send um, drawings 
and then looked at the drawings and given them to somebody else to paint. She's absolutely furious about this and she sort of refuses to um, send any more drawings if they're going to basically be stolen and given to a a cheaper artist to do. Um, But she's extremely ambitious. She stands up for herself. She will say things like, you know, you wouldn't treat a man this way. It's, you know, it's a really, really interesting example of how a woman can be quite conscious of her own sort of second class position in society, but also kind of make a point of saying, I know some people will try and treat me um, as if I'm inferior to men. And, you know, I'm really not going to put up with that. Which I guess that reaction gives us um, a sense of how some people viewed her as a female artist and that she did come up against difficulties. Yes. And, uh, you know, she, um, you know, she will say things like, if I were a man, um, I can't imagine it would have turned out this way. Or, you know, when she has a collector asking for a discount, she says, I was mortified to hear that you want to deduct one third. You know, this is impossible. You know, look at the value of the painting. So she will really stand up for herself. She's quite a sharp businesswoman. She will complain, for example, about, you know, it's really hard to get, you know, good models who won't rip you off, who will turn up when they're meant to and all the rest of it. So she is, um, and and she comes to be somebody who actually has, but later in her life, has a workshop of artists producing and and supporting works. This is quite typical for a star artist of the period. Um, Later in their careers, particularly, they won't do everything themselves. They will subcontract kind of backgrounds and sketching out and and it will be understood on the art market that paintings that might be branded an Artemisia may have input from several different people and that there are levels of Artemisia. So there's one which she's just touched up, there's one where she's done quite a lot of the work and there's one where she really has painted most of it. Um, but partly for that reason, it can be tricky now for um, art historians and experts to be exactly sure which are her paintings and which are not. I mean, it's, it's dead straightforward with the, the kind of famous, with, with the heroines, as well as these kind of powerful women. Um, but there are a lot of paintings as well where which don't have those motifs, which is probably painting more for clients to fit into a kind of more conservative taste. And there it becomes harder to pick out which are hers and which are other people's. With that establishment of a workshop, essentially, did financial stability accompany that? Well, right until very late in her life, she is still having arguments about money and she is still objecting to people who want a discount on her work and trying to make sure the work goes for a good price. Uh, With several daughters, there is going to be a question about dowries and having to provide for those children and make sure they're set up properly. Um, We don't have much in the way of her personal accounts and documents. So um, there's some research that has uncovered a little bit about what happened in the Florentine period of her life when she was quite living on credit. So um, it's expensive being a painter, right? You have to pay for materials, you have to pay for canvases, you have to pay for to keep up appearances at court. And so, you know, she will be spending on dresses, which she might wear and um, to give the correct appearance, but which she might also give to her models to, um, you know, to wear when they're posing for paintings. Both the kind of keeping up appearances and the materials cost a lot of money. So um, at that point, she's kind of living on credit and then recouping it. And for a while in Florence, she keeps going. But at a certain point, and particularly when the marriage starts to fall apart, it looks um, as if she does get into debt. 
um, and it becomes more difficult for her to keep going in that pattern. So she leaves. So I think, you know, when you're in that kind of role, I mean, you know, then as now, you're reliant on selling work and you're also reliant on clients paying promptly. And, you know, just as a general observation, wealthy people in that society often do a lot of living on credit themselves and don't necessarily pay on time. So everybody um, lives in this cycle of credit and debt. And so long as you can manage to keep the cycle going and you're doing the equivalent to pay off your credit card bills, it's okay. But it it can be quite precarious. Some of Artemisia's most striking pictures are self-portraits. There's one of her as a lute player that's particularly notable. Why would she have painted self-portraits? Would they have been for patrons? Would they have been um, because because it was easy to use herself as a model? It's really hard to get inside her head and know why she would paint self-portraits, really. A lot of artists use self-portraits for experimenting. So in the the world self-portrait, we've got where she's actually sort of in the act of painting herself. I think that's really interesting. It's not um, an angle that you see very commonly. It's not a pose that you see very commonly. It's not at all her trying to um, fit into a typical sort of beauty standard of the period. You know, she's, you know, she's, she comes across, you know, she's fairly big. She's kind of quite muscular. She's doing the kind of action of painting. It's very unlike a lot of the quite feminine portraits that you might see of court ladies in the period. It's rather more, and in some ways it has some commonalities with the, the strong women of, of, of the Old Testament paintings. It's unfortunately the case that we don't have lots and lots and lots of documents with which to get inside her head. And we have the the letters um, to and from patrons, but they're often quite businesslike and you're just picking out little details. From the documents that are available, for example, the the letters to patrons and things like that, what sense do we get of Artemisia's character and her voice? I mean, the sources for Artemisia are quite complicated because we've got a limited number of letters um, to patrons in which we see that she can be quite assertive about wanting to get paid, the, you know, the money that she's worth. And um, so that gives us a little bit of a sense of her sort of power and um, confidence, I think, and ambition in negotiating prices for her paintings and so on. And then we have this set of letters um, to her lover, um, in Florence. So those have been a, a more, more of an important source. Um, and then we have the big set of documents from the rape trial, which are by far the most dramatic. And it's partly that kind of imbalance in the documents that has meant that so much attention got focused on the trial, because it is the time that we really hear from her, I mean, mediated through the court officials, but as directly as is possible. There's kind of a tension at the heart of this discussion, because mm-hmm. we've spoken a lot about how... Um, Artemisia was a brilliant artist regardless of her gender but also her gender did play an important part in her biography and it meant that she had to face extra challenges um, as an artist. How do you see that balance? Do you think that her gender is something we should try and move away from or do you think it's something that we should recognise? which involved negotiating all sorts of things um, around, you know, relationships with um, husbands and lovers and children um, and the 
oppression that women in that society faced, which is very real. Um, and so she she does work that I think it would be phenomenally difficult for a man of the same epoch to do because, you know, it is so clear that she is bringing to bear a different perspective on society by virtue of the fact that she's a woman. Um, but at the same time, I am reluctant. She does lots of things which are technically very exciting in terms of, you know, the, the light and the shade and the angles and the subjects and the, the choices about how to treat her different subjects emotionally. And, and those stand in their own right in a narrative about the way that art develops in the period. So I think we can acknowledge the impact of her gender without saying, well, she's an important woman artist. If you could recommend that all listeners go out and seek out one, or maybe I'll let you have two, of Artemisia's paintings, which ones would you recommend? I think that the, the, the Judith is just the one that is unmissable. Um, and it's just so dramatic. It's so um, different and powerful from many, many other treatments of that same subject. I just think that is probably going to be top of a lot of people's lists. But I also like the um, I like the self portrait um, when she's painting. I like the way that sort of breaks away from being a kind of full on face self portrait. It shows her in action, and it shows her in action doing her job. And actually, you know, women just doing their jobs is not something we see a lot in Renaissance or Baroque painting. Um, and I like it, you know, because it shows her clearly doing something that, you know, she loved doing, she did through all her life and that she was brilliant at. And finally, of course, we've got the big exhibition being launched at the National Gallery. Why do you think that Artemisia is so worthy of looking back on in 2020? I think that for a very long time, there has been this assumption that um, Renaissance and Baroque art is primarily the province of men, and that the few women who were prominent painters are kind of interesting, but as curiosities and very much as women artists, and not as just artists. And I hope very much what this exhibition will do is to say, look, this is somebody who is a star artist, full stop, has important perspectives because of her gender, but is in no sense a sort of just the top of the women artists. I think it's really interesting that they have decided to ditch the surname and go for just calling it Artemisia, because that is putting her on a level with the artists like Michelangelo, who for whom you drop the surname, like Raphael, we'd have to call him Raphael Asancio, that, that gets dropped, Titian. He doesn't have a surname either. So by doing that naming, they are really going for the, you know, she is at that one name star artist level. And, I, you know, I think she absolutely deserves it. That was Catherine Fletcher. You can read Catherine's feature on Artemisia in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on Queen Mary, the Apollo 13 mission, the Declaration of Arbroath and the real spies that inspired James Bond. The National Gallery exhibition on Artemisia is currently postponed, but you can keep up with the latest developments on that at nationalgallery.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 
Tune in next on Wednesday when we'll be discussing the social and economic impact of the Black Death. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.